This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. So there's been this massive robbery of the population for 40 years and uh, has its effects on the way the government works. That's why you end up with, say, 90% of the population being basically unrepresented. And these struggles go on constantly. They're going to go on in the post-pandemic world. It's a radical class struggle. But only one element in the struggle is always fighting the business world. They're dedicated. They never stop. Unless working people, the general population, take part in the class struggle, they're going to get it in the neck. That's Noam Chomsky, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Noam Chomsky on class struggle or get it in the neck. The ruling class, and there is such a thing, assiduously attends to its needs. That is to say, to maintain and expand its power and wealth. How does it do that? By manipulation, propaganda, and political influence. It deploys divide and rule tactics to not only distract most people, but goads them to turn on one another. The idea is to get people to look down and not up at those who are on top. So your class enemy is not gazillionaires such as Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, but it's the poor guy down the street, out of work, behind in his rent, and his family doesn't have enough food to eat. The boot is on his neck. How to get it off? Organize and resist. Our guest today is Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar-activist who has been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. Chris Hedges says he's America's greatest intellectual who makes the powerful, as well as their liberal apologists, deeply uncomfortable. I talked with Noam Chomsky on November 30th. He was at his home in Arizona, and I was in Boulder. Let's start with the pandemic. Excuse this crude expression, but Americans are dropping like flies, a death a minute, 150,000 new cases every day. NPR reporting a dire picture around the country and hospital resources are stretched thin. New York Times headline, as surge spreads, no corner of nation is spared. What started as a Midwestern surge has grown into a coast-to-coast disaster. Ignoring CDC advice about traveling and gathering in large numbers, we're heading into the peak holiday season. There'll be more grim milestones in the offing, 300,000 dead, 400,000 dead, etc. If this is not a national emergency, I don't know what is. What must be done? What has to be done is uh, to follow the advice of the scientists and of the countries that have successfully managed it. Uh, There are, it is not inevitable. We can see this from the fact that other countries, rich and poor, have 
handled it pretty well. China, for example, is just back to work. There are very few cases. Uh, Vietnam, right on the border of China, almost no cases. Uh, New Zealand, basically under control. Australia, pretty much under control. South Korea, Taiwan, uh, Senegal, uh, Kenya, uh, Nordic countries are not too bad. I mean, there are places that have more or less managed, which tells us, and they're countries of a very diverse kind, which tells us that it is possible, but not without leadership that deny, most of the time even denies that it's happening, uh, which filters down to the population. Uh, we've seen reports of uh, people in, say, the Dakotas uh, dying in hospital beds of COVID and telling the nurses that it's all a hoax, it's not happening. Uh, I, you drive around, I, I stay home, but I drive sometimes. You see people uh, congregating in supermarket malls, uh, no masks, uh, normal behavior. Uh, yes, that's going to happen. Yeah. What about this notion of um, what you hear in some circles of individual freedom versus collective responsibility? Well, individual freedom is a curious idea. I mean, do you have the freedom to drive on the left side of the road if you feel like it? Uh, do you have the freedom to uh, run around a supermarket mall shooting off an assault rifle at random? That's what it means to go to a public uh, event, a public area without wearing a mask. That's threatening people's lives, seriously. That's not individual freedom. That's uh, unacceptable license. Uh, nobody accepts the kinds of things I described. If you want a choice not to wear a mask, that's okay, stay home. Don't endanger others. At some point soon, hopefully, there will be vaccines. But how do we want to come out of this pandemic and attendant economic crisis? The status quo, Anthony? There presumably will be vaccines. In fact, there are some already that are in pretty advanced stages of testing. Uh, the most advanced, as far as I know, is almost unmentionable in the United States, the Chinese vaccine. Uh, they're already using it on large numbers of people that may or may not be good practice. Uh, that I'm not in a position to judge, but it's apparently pretty advanced and it's taken seriously by American scientists. We don't hear about it. it won't be available to Americans if it works. There are vaccines being developed here, uh, what's called the Pfizer vaccine, which actually was developed by two Turkish immigrants in Germany, marketed by Pfizer. It's uh, the Moderna vaccine. These may come along, there's an Oxford vaccine. Then comes the question, will people take them? Can they be distributed to the people who need them? Uh, those are open questions. 
there are policy choices that relate to this. So for example, there is an international consortium, COVAX, 160 or 70 countries, uh, which have been working on trying to uh, develop cooperation in vaccine development, which is obviously the best way data should be shared freely, uh, not sequestered by particular private corporations and governments that support them. Uh, should be shared freely, should be general involvement, there should be no monopolization of vaccines, uh, there should be distribution arranged to the people around the world who need it, not those rich enough to buy it. Uh, all of these things, at least in principle, are the uh, working agenda of COVAX, how well it's being honored, we could ask, but at least that's the agenda. The US just refuses to participate, it's pulled out. So that of course undermines it. Uh, the uh, uh, other efforts to develop um, the United States, not alone, some of the European countries have done this, are trying to monopolize uh, any vaccine that comes. Then comes the question of using it and distributing it within the country. In the United States, there are large number of people who say, we're just not going to accept this. We don't want the government to intrude on our personal lives. I don't believe it. There's a big anti-vaccine movement in the United States altogether, which has a lethal effect. In a rich country like this, it's a significant effect. In poor countries, if it spreads there, it's just lethal. Uh, but there is such a movement. It's rooted in understandable uh, uh, contempt or at least distrust in government, understandable, but it shouldn't reach to this domain. And uh, that's going to be a serious problem. Even if a vaccine is developed and is available, uh, note we of course, United States is unusual, almost unique and not having a, a general health system. So it's not clear that a vaccine is available, it'll even be affordable, or that there'll be places where people can go to to get it. That takes national coordination. Trump administration has, of course, refused to do this. It remains to be seen whether a Biden administration will carry out a plan. Trump has refused until just a few days ago, even to share data with the incoming Biden administration that of course makes any reaction slower and more ineffective. Uh, there should be major pressures to accelerate the development of, uh, first of all, the imposition of procedures which will restrict and mitigate the spread of the virus. And secondly, uh, efforts to make sure that when vaccines are available, they'll be essentially free and there will be uh, distribution ensured to those who need them, who will be encouraged to take them, not being told that the vaccine is a hoax and the, that the disease is a hoax. And we're living in a country of, where a large part of the country is just in a, in extreme denialism. I mean, if you can believe the polls, uh, 
over three quarters of Republicans think that the election was stolen. Uh, huge percentages think uh, global warming is not a serious problem. Actually, it's a, an extraordinary problem. A denial of the pandemic is also significant. Uh, in such an atmosphere, it's going to be very hard to deal with uh, extremely serious problems. And that's just the beginning. Remember that if we manage to overcome this uh, crisis, there are other ones coming. We should remember what happened in 2003. We were going to relive that. The SARS epidemic was contained. Uh, scientists informed the world that uh, uh, other coronavirus uh, epidemics, maybe pandemics, were very likely uh, the means to uh, become prepared were available, they were described, they weren't pursued. Uh, the drug companies weren't interested because there's no profit in it. Uh, the government was held back by the neoliberal claims that government can't do anything, demands. Uh, so some things were done. The uh, Obama administration, which was science-oriented, when it came into office, uh, Obama did convene the President's uh, Science Advisory Council. They, he requested a pandemic response system, which they prepared and it was put into operation. It was terminated in January 2017, when Trump came into office. One of his first actions was to dismantle it, to proceed to end the programs where American scientists were working with Chinese colleagues to try to identify potential viruses. Uh, Center for Disease Control was defunded. The United States was singularly unprepared when the virus finally hit, and then came chaotic reactions which have led to this uh, destructive the impact that you described. Again, it's going to happen when this one is contained. We either learn the lessons or we face even worse pandemics. Should bear in mind that so far we've been lucky with coronaviruses. There have been some, like the present one, which are highly contagious but not very lethal. There have been some, like Ebola, which was very lethal not too contagious. Nothing guarantees that the next one down the road won't be the worst of all worlds, contagious and lethal. Well, doesn't the severity of the current crisis demand uh, a kind of national emergency? Would you favor something like that to coordinate response? There was no coordinated response. In fact, Trump very explicitly, I think, back around May or so, said it's the responsibility of the states. We're not going to do anything about it. Uh, the, uh, the, from his point of view, you could understand that. That meant if anything went wrong, as it was very likely to do, you could blame it on the states, especially the states with democratic governors. Uh, you could blame it on them. And, uh, of course, if significant measures are taken, it will have a harmful economic effect. So you could blame the 
the harsh economic consequences on the methods that were taken to control the crisis. All of this was done. I mean, some of the things that were done were really surreal. So when uh, there was a chief scientist in charge of vaccine development, he criticized some of Trump's quack medicines. He was fired. You know, uh, this happened all the way up and down the line. Uh, since the election, it's gotten worse. Trump simply refused to do anything, as I said, even to hand over data. Um, it's as if, and it may be true, that they just want to make it worse so that the country will be more ungovernable when Biden comes in and failures can be blamed on the Democratic administration. McConnell, remember, who's sort of the evil genius behind many of these plans, has a long record of working to render government ungovernable uh, if it's in the wrong hands, did that with Obama for years. It's not an attractive picture. I mean, the one positive thing is that Obama, uh, Biden, does seem to be attentive to the views of the scientific community, at least so it looks. I hope that's true. But he's sure not going to get any cooperation from uh, the Republican Party. Let's talk about the November 3rd election, the record turnout of 150 million people, the success of voting by mail and early voting, uh, a bit of euphoria, if I could use that term, as the autocrat is replaced, and we can go back to things as they were, a kind of restoration. A sigh of relief was audible in establishment circles and in media pundits like David Brooks and Thomas Friedman and Mark Shields. You wrote to me a few days after the election. You said of the results, I'm quoting you, relief, but no celebration. Depressing to see Democrats blow it again. What did you mean by that? Because the Democrats had plenty of money. What happened to the blue wave? The Democrats lost to an incredible degree. They lost at every level except for the presidency. And the presidency was a vote against Trump, even by uh, many of the wealthy who were tired of his, in the corporate sector and tired of his antics. But at every other level, Congress, uh, state legislatures, local elections, they lost and badly literally at every level. And this was, if you think of the circumstances, it's astonishing that Trump was even able to run. Uh, here's somebody who had just killed tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans through malevolent practice, let alone all of his other crimes. And he's running for president and considered a viable candidate. And, it, and not only that, but the whole ticket that supported him won at every level. It's an amazing defeat for the Democrats. And uh, you take a look and you can ask, not that the Democrats are all that great, but uh, it was just a sh just in terms of poly party politics, it was a shocking failure. Uh, and I think you can see why. Um, and the Democrats devoted their uh, campaign efforts 
to try to swing some affluent uh, suburbs towards the Democrats. Well, maybe they succeeded in that, but that's not enough to uh, develop a, any sort of electoral strategy. In fact, this has been going on since Obama. Since Obama, the Democratic Party has pretty much abandoned its activities at the local and state levels. Just doesn't bother. It's a party of Wall Street, uh, rich professionals and so on. Uh, the others will take care of themselves. And, and you can see this in particular cases. So there's been a lot of discussion about the uh, quite remarkable Democratic Party losses in uh, South Texas on the border, largely Mexican-American community. Uh, well, number of reasons. This, these are areas that hadn't voted for a Republican for a century, literally, since Harding. Uh, Trump did quite well, even won in some areas. Dramatic reversal. A number of analyses have been put forth, but one that I think is very telling is that these are oil, this is an oil economy. And if you read liberal commentators, they say that uh, Trump, that Biden lost it because of the terrible gaffe in the last uh, debate. You recall at the end of the last debate, Biden said something which had liberal commentators just shocked at his terrible gaffe, his horrible thing to say. And he was then trying to overcome the, uh, the mistake of others were trying to do it too. What was the mistake? He said, we have to do something to prevent uh, the human species from being destroyed. It's basically what he said. Those weren't his words. His words were, we have to face the fact that there's going to have to be transition to a non-fossil fuel economy, which is equivalent to saying we have to do something to try to make sure that, make, make it likely at least that human society can survive. That was a horrible gaffe, and it affected the, uh, uh, the oil-producing economies because people felt you hear it from interviews and so on, uh, the Democrats are going to take my life away, going to take away my, my job, my community, my, my businesses, and so on, just because some pointy-headed liberals claim that there's a climate crisis. Okay. Now, of course, the gaffe was not saying it loudly and clearly. Yes, we have to say that loud and clear we have to get off a fossil fuel economy and fast within a couple of decades, which means not delaying, starting now, cutting it back each year so that, say, by mid-century, we've finished with fossil fuels. That has to be said strongly and persuasively. So what do you do about the oil-producing sectors? What do you do about South Texas or areas where there's fracking in Pennsylvania, you don't just say, sorry, folks, you got to lose your jobs and your, and your business and everything else because we say there's a climate crisis. What you do is go down there and organize 
and explain to people what it means. It means, first of all, that this is inevitable, we have to do it. You, your children and grandchildren will be consigned to hell if we aren't, if we don't. Uh, secondly, there's an effective way to do it, and a way to do it which will improve your lives, give you better jobs, more jobs, a more livable environment, uh, better community, better health. Here are the ways, I'll spell them out to you. It happens to be true, and it can be done, but it's not done if uh, the Democratic National Committee is devoting its efforts to try to convince a couple of affluent suburban women to shift their vote. You have to be down there working on it. And in the places where there was mostly Latino organizing was effective. And where, where I live, Maricopa County, Arizona, there has been extensive organizing Latino leadership for several years and it continued and they uh, voted against Trump but it has to be done. And the same was true of many other issues. I mean, take the, the liberal Democrats are being, are claiming that the election was lost because, you know, the crazy leftists were saying defund the police. Well, I think about that for a minute. If you just say defund the police, yeah, you're gonna lose. You're telling people, I want you to have no protection if somebody breaks into your home. Nobody wants to hear that, okay? On the other hand, if you give the actual substantive meaning of defund the police, as Bernie Sanders, a couple of others tried to do, it's a sensible, attractive program which people will support and which the police will support. It says, take away from the police uh, responsibilities that they should never have in the first place. In fact, the large majority of their responsibilities. And police shouldn't be involved in domestic disputes or mental health problems or lost dogs or uh, you know, overdose of uh, drugs and so on. That's not police business. These things all should be handled by community services under community control, which can do them better. So defund the police by taking away those responsibilities. Next step, as Sanders himself tried to emphasize, increase salaries for police, make it a better occupation, uh, make better conditions for it. So the police can do the things that in fact, any community is gonna need, uh, but not other things and not running around with uh, heavy weapons, terrorizing people, okay? That's defund the police. But if you just scream the slogan, nobody hears that. What they hear is, you don't care if people break into my home. Okay. People by implication, black, you know, the me that's the message. I mean, if you want to be serious about achieving goals, you have to pay attention to your tactics. That's crucial. The tactics aren't just something you, uh, insignificant, at the fringe. Uh, any activist and organizer should know, it should be their second nature, that that's what matters. How do you approach people? How do you get them to understand what you're trying to say? What you think is for their benefit and for the benefit of others? 
not by shouting a slogan, takes work, takes direct organizing activism. It's interesting, the alacrity of the establishment Democrats to blame their poor showing on, as you mentioned, not by name, but Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib and Omar Ilan and Presley and all the other young, many of them women, uh, activists. We need real engagement from the local level on up. And without that, you can have the nicest slogans you want. It's not going to achieve anything. Uh, some of the results of the election are pretty remarkable now that the the data are beginning to come in. Tony DiMaggio, who you know, has done some of the best work on these topics for years. He had a recent study of the latest uh, available data on voting patterns, uh, confirmed what's been reported elsewhere. Trump won remarkably high in almost any demographic. Not out of range for what it's been in the past, but remarkably high. Uh, and one particular, the, as he's shown before, the main support for Trump is relatively affluent, not super rich, but relatively affluent, way above the median, 100,000 to 200,000 income range. That's not working people, contrary to illusions. That's rough. The median income's around $70,000. That's median. Uh, the lower than that, Trump does poorly. And when you go to higher incomes, it's sort of split. You know, the rich professionals are split. Uh, the very wealthy in this election are somewhat split because of concern about the way Trump's harming their interests in the economy. But that range, 100 to 200,000, not only again was the base for Trump's support, but seems to have increased substantially since 2016. I should say that's kind of a mystery. I don't understand whether it should be true, but it happened and we should think about it. There's a lot of problems to deal with for the left if it hopes to make any progress. Uh, one, of course, is the Biden administration. Very much a mixed story. I mean, among the economic advisors and appointees, it's not too bad. People like uh, Heather Bushy, uh, Jared Bernstein, Janet Yellen, uh, appointments that can be very positive. Others, much less so. And across the board, there's lots to object to. Means if you want to get the Biden administration to, I mean, just getting rid of Trump is a major victory, but it's not going to mean very much if you can't implement policies that are substantive and effective in dealing with the massive crises that exist. You're listening to Noam Chomsky on class struggle or get it in the neck. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To order CDs of this program as well as Chomsky books, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We're offering MP3s. 
PDFs and written transcripts of this program at no charge. Just call us 1-800-444-1977. Let's talk about the Supreme Court uh, and the power of Mitch McConnell, which was demonstrated when he rammed through the Barrett uh, Supreme Court nomination, giving the high court a decisive right-wing majority, perhaps for decades. What do you think about proposals for term limits for Supreme Court justices and or expanding the number of justices? Also being mentioned is statehood for Puerto Rico and Washington uh, that would increase the number of senators by four. Or do you think these are are just time-consuming dead ends given the structure of politics? Well, those are important, but remember they're only part of the judiciary problem. Uh, McConnell, for 10 years now, has been uh, working hard to ensure that uh, the entire judiciary, top to bottom, will be staffed by young, ultra-right Federalist Society lawyers who will be able to maintain the ultra-reactionary McConnell-Trump style programs for a generation by simply blocking everything else at every level. That's been the main function of the Senate. Uh, First blocking Obama's nominees, uh, second by ramming through uh, the huge number of uh, ultra-right young nominees uh, during the Trump years. And it's been very effective. You look at the numbers, it's astonishing. Uh, McConnell has essentially eliminated the Senate as a deliberative body. Theoretically, the you know, it's famously described as the world's greatest deliberative body. Okay, you can argue about that. But at least the term meant something. Uh, now it's not that. Uh, the House sends measures to the Senate. They don't even look at them. Uh, what they do is two things. Pass legislation to benefit the corporate sector and the very rich from deregulation to the incredible tax scam. That's one task. And the other is to staff the judiciary with the far right. So it's not just the Supreme Court. Even I think admitting Puerto Rico and D.C. are proper for lots of reasons should be done, but it's going to be very hard to achieve that over a Republican Senate uh, or to achieve anything with McConnell. I mean, the idea that you can somehow make friends with them and cooperate with them, uh, that's a joke. Uh, They're out for blood. They're not going to want to cooperate. They want to make the country ungovernable so that they can come back into power at every level, not just the every level below the president. I think that's what we're going to be seeing for the next couple of years, basically an extension of what's going on. Howard Zinn, uh, though, had this to say, it would be naive to depend on the Supreme Court to defend the rights of poor people, women, people of color, dissenters of all kinds. Those rights only come alive when citizens organize, protest, demonstrate, strike, boycott, rebel, and violate the law in order to uphold justice. That's a direct quote from Howard Zinn. 
That's pretty much what the historical record shows. I mean, you can go back to the Constitution. You know, by the standards of the 18th century, the Constitution was moderately progressive, but it was not what the population wanted. Uh, the Constitution was uh, well described in the major scholarly study of the formation of the Constitution, uh, Clorman's book, uh, which is called uh, The Framers' Coup, The Coup of the Framers Against Democracy. That's the scholarly gold standard. Excellent book, incidentally, very good reading. But you can see in it, step by step, how Madison, Hamilton, other major figures in framing the Constitution were primarily concerned about the popular democratic thrust among the general population. A lot of it played out on issues that most people don't pay much attention to. It was a huge struggle, for example, about paper money. Uh, during the fighting of the American Revolution, uh, the government had uh, huge debts. And the question is, how are they going to be paid off? Well, one proposal was put it on the shoulders of the population, make them pay for it, not the rich speculators. We want to preserve their rights. That's the way the Constitution was framed. The population wanted paper money, so the currency would be inflated, kind of pay off the debts, the speculators, they would suffer from it, but the population would gain. That was one major part of the of the uh, formation of the Constitution. Another part was Madison's realization that if you, well, as he put it, the Senate should represent the wealth of the nation, the most responsible group of men, those who have sympathy with property owners and their rights. So the Senate was given the major power among the various components of the government. It was not elected. It was picked by electors, picked out of the legislature who could be trusted to make sure that the wealthy would be in charge. Uh, and uh, many other measures were proposed with the main purpose of preventing democracy. Even large legislative districts where people wouldn't be able to get together. Remember, this is the days of the horse and carriage. Hard to get around. Uh, lots of devices, the detailed intelligent measures were taken to reduce the threat of democracy and to carry out the framers' coup against democracy. But there was a problem. The population didn't accept it. You had lots of ferment, the kinds of things that Howard Zinn was talking about, uprising, efforts to gain more democratic rights, took all sorts of forms. And this struggle has gone on throughout American history. Uh, Supreme Court, which he mentioned, is a good example. Supreme Court has overwhelmingly been on the side of wealth and power. Not totally. There were breaks, but that's been the strong tendency. It's a conservative institution. Actually, the Constitution does not say anything about the Supreme Court having the right of judicial review, having the authority to, um, to cancel legislation. Now, that was just introduced by the court itself under Chief Justice Marshall years later.
it's become the conventions since. Uh, but these are all constant struggles. And it's not just the courts and the government. It's also private power, which is enormous, has an immense influence on the government. Uh, very recently, uh, another high-level paper came out, a serious analysis. Uh, as far as I saw, it was reported only in the London Financial Times, uh, giving much more sophisticated and detailed uh, evidence to support what has been shown pretty effectively for a long time, that most of the population has no influence whatsoever on governmental decisions, maybe the top 10%, and of them, a very small fraction, in fact. Uh, well, that's quite apart from the formal constitutional structure. And of course, during the neoliberal period, last 40 years, all of this has been strongly enhanced. One of the major effects of the neoliberal period has been one of them, of course, is well known to have sharply concentrated wealth while much of the population stagnates. But there's an effect of that. That has an immediate effect on undermining of democratic decision-making for perfectly obvious reasons. There was a pretty remarkable study which should be better known on the transfer of wealth from the working class and the middle class uh, to the extreme wealthy during the years since Reagan. Uh, the Rand Corporation, ultra respectable analysis corporation, uh, came out with an estimate of the, what they call the transfer of wealth. We should call it the robbery of the population by the very rich. Uh, their estimate is in the last 40 years is $47 trillion. That's not small change. And it's an underestimate because it doesn't include lots of other things. Uh, Reagan uh, opened the spigot on all sorts of other ways to rob the public, like uh, tax havens, uh, shell companies, other devices. Clinton added to it, not only by his radical deregulation of the financial institutions, which just set them into the stratosphere, uh, but also by his uh, so-called trade relation, uh, trade agreements, which had nothing much to do with trade, certainly very little to do with free trade, but were uh, highly advantageous to great corporate wealth and very destructive to the working class, as they predicted in advance, and in fact has happened. So there's been this massive robbery of the population for 40 years uh, and uh, has its effects on the way the government works. Uh, that's why you end up with, say, 90% of the population having basically, being basically unrepresented. And these struggles go on constantly. They're going to go on in the post-pandemic world. It's a radical class struggle, but only one one element in the struggle is always fighting the business world. They're dedicated. They never stop. They didn't stop during the New Deal, uh, continued, continued afterwards, always going on, unless the working people, the general population, take part in the class struggle. They're going to get it in the neck. 
this year began with the U.S. assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, and it almost ends with the assassination of Iranian scientist uh, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, probably by uh, Israel. Uh, David Sanger, writing in the New York Times, reported, the assassination threatens to cripple President-elect Biden's efforts to revive the Iran nuclear deal before he can even begin his diplomacy with Tehran. And he continues, and that may well have been a main goal of the operation. About Benjamin Netanyahu, Sanger writes that he has a second agenda, and that is, quoting Netanyahu, there must be no return to the previous nuclear agreement. So nowhere in that article does Sanger even mention that Israel has weapons of mass destruction, uh, nuclear weapons, and that this assassination is yet another example of violations with impunity of international law. What's going on with U.S.-Iran relations in this interim period and the dangers you suggest of a possible wider war? Well, that's an important question, but we should remember there's a background. Why is the U.S. torturing Iran in the first place? Okay, what is the justification for the U.S. sanctions regime? This is not the first murder of a nuclear weapon scientist. There have been a string of others. Uh, sabotage of Iranian facilities, just one very recently. Uh, all of these things. What's the justification for any of them? Actually, none, as I just mentioned. But let's talk about this specific one. Uh, I think that analysis is pretty plausible. It looks as if for some time now, the Trump, Pompeo administration has been trying hard to provoke Iran to carry out some kind of act which can be used as a pretext for a sharp escalation of the war against Iran. Notice we are at war against Iran. We have a blockade. U.S. sanctions are a serious business. U.S. sanctions are third-party sanctions means everyone in the world must observe them or else. Europe doesn't like them, but they have to observe them or else we'll toss them out of the international financial system. We just saw this shown dramatically at the United Nations a couple of weeks ago. The United States went to the Security Council and requested, meaning demanded, that the Security Council renew the lapsed sanctions against Iran, uh, they refused. Almost total refusal. Every U.S. ally refused. U.S. reacted. Pompeo returned to the Security Council and said, you are reinstituting the sanctions. They obeyed. You can't step on the toes of the Godfather. Uh, this also passed without comment. So, uh, this is just one of the many examples where uh, Trump, the Trump administration is trying almost desperately to get Iran to carry out some action which they can use as a pretext probably for missile attacks against the nuclear facilities or something like that. 
to which Iran might respond. For example, they do have the capacity, the missile capacity, to attack the uh, Saudi uh, energy facilities in northeast Saudi Arabia, right at the Iran border. They can attack those. That's the main center of global fossil fuel production. Also, Saudi Arabia's desalination facilities and others. Uh, that would set off a huge war. You know, we don't know what it would lead to. But they're eager to do this uh, to try to ensure, exactly as Netanyahu said, that we do not go back to the earlier situation. Now, actually, I agree with Netanyahu. We should not go back to the earlier, to the agreement. What we should do is impose a nuclear weapons-free zone in which Israeli nuclear weapons will be subject to international controls and inspection and in which USAID Israel will be questioned. We should, that's what we should do, not just go back to the JCPOA. So in some ways I agree with them, but we shouldn't be trapped in this narrow conception that's provided by the media and general intellectual framework. We don't want to be trapped in that. Uh, but that's probably what they're trying to do. I think the analysis is correct. In fact, the Biden administration is playing along. Uh, one of their top military appointees, Jake Sullivan, uh, really recently said the Biden administration will be willing to consider going back to the joint agreement, but the wall is in Iran's court. They have to start by cutting back, by reversing their increased enrichment of uranium. They've got to reverse that. And they've got to have a positive attitude toward negotiations. If they do that, we'll consider it. Okay. Absolutely backwards. We're the ones who should be pleading with them to go back to the negotiations, which we have consistently undermined, actually destroyed and under Trump, but undermined under Obama. Even under Obama, we were not living up to the agreements. Uh, the agreements say one part of them is that no party shall try to injure the Iranian economy during the period of the negotiations. I don't remember the exact words, but it was something to that effect. The Obama administration was doing it constantly. We weren't living up to the agreements. But now the Biden administration spokesman is saying we might be willing to consider going back to the negotiations if they take the first steps, as if it's they're the guilty party, not us. Okay? We should never accept any of this. Robert Fisk, we both knew and you shared uh, platforms with him, passed away in late October. Uh, in 2010, he said this about objectivity. It is the duty of a foreign correspondent to be neutral and unbiased on the side of those who suffer, whoever they may be. Now, Fisk was a critic of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, Israeli treatment of Palestinians. Uh, he wrote of the Kurdish question, the Armenian genocide, and other taboo topics. Uh, talk about him briefly and the, this notion, this sacred notion of objectivity. It's a funny notion. First of all, Fisk was a marvelous a correspondent, brave, honest, knowledgeable, great writer. The, much of the profession just hated him. 
And now he's under very ugly attacks from many journalists. A number of good journalists have written about this, like Jonathan Cook. Now that he's dead, he can't sue anybody. All kind of ugly attacks are coming from journalists. It's sick. Uh, so what about objectivity? Uh, first of all, we shouldn't pretend that we're just neutral observers. Every human being has a point of view. If you don't have a point of view on things, you just not, you're not a human being, not a, you don't have a functioning brain. Okay, if you're a serious journalist or scholar, what you do is make your point of view very clear so that your readers can understand it and compensate for it, and then try to be as accurate as you can about what's happening, uh, always framed in the background by what's important to you. If what's important to you is the rights of the powerful, okay, make that clear and write from that perspective. If your point of view is perspective is the rights of the suffering and the oppressed, make that clear and then describe that as accurately as you can uh, without cutting corners. But uh, pure objectivity is just a meaningless notion in the sciences as well. Uh, no nuclear physicist approaches the next article he reads with pure objectivity as if he didn't have some beliefs about the subject. I mean, that's just ludicrous. You read the scientific literature, a paper just came out a couple of weeks ago on in one of the top quantum theory journals which, with a debate among top scientists about what a particle is, the most critical concept in physics. What's a particle? A lot of different views, people arguing about it. Uh, any way they look at an experiment is going to be shaped by their point of view. That's fundamental physics. Suppose you're looking at uh, the Syrian war. Of course, you're going to have a point of view. But that doesn't mean you can't be a fine objective journalist, as Robert Fisk was, Patrick Coburn, Charles Glass, Jonathan Steele, quite a few others can be done. They all have a point of view. Fisk was also a great human being. I knew him personally for many years. Last question. Years yeah. ago, you told me you had, quote, bad genes and that you did not expect to live a long life. Well, you turned 92 on December 7th. You have a bicycle theory of longevity. Explain what that is. The bicycle theory? Yeah. It's pretty simple. If you keep riding fast, you don't fall off. Unfortunately, my wife, Valeria, won't let me get near the bicycle. Trust me. <laughs> well, your theory of longevity. Well, I think I can say for a lot of people, happy birthday, Noam. Thanks. <laughs> Keep writing. <laughs> Thank you. Take care, Noam. That was Noam Chomsky on Class Struggle or Get It in the Neck. I talked with him on November 30th. Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar-activist, is America's leading dissident intellectual. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're independent and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. 
Since its inception, AR has made a special effort to record and archive Noam Chomsky's work. We have more than 250 recordings and a number of his books, including Requiem for the American Dream, Masters of Mankind, and Media Control, The Achievements of Propaganda. For CDs of today's program, Noam Chomsky on Class Struggle or Get It in the Neck, and his books, Requiem for the American Dream, Masters of Mankind, and Media Control, The Achievements of Propaganda, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, alternativeradio.org. In solidarity with you, our listeners, we're offering MP3s, PDFs, and written transcripts of this program at no charge. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Hello. 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 What is it? CJSW. This is CrispinGlover.com. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you. I promise you... I clicked that ad on or that uh, station ID on time. I just got that little uh, a little rainbow circle that you sometimes get on uh, on Apple computers. How's it going? Anyway, this is Phonosynthesis. My name is Andy. You are tuned in. We're listening to it. How are you? It is kind of a dreary Wednesday afternoon. A little slushy, little rain mix with snow kind of business going on, but that's okay. I got a pretty cool show. I kind of delved through the the depths of the online music blogging community to uh, pull some real uh, real stars out for this one. So very excited about that. We got some good stuff. It was really hard to track down. Yeah, there's some songs. Uh, there's some songs on this playlist that took uh, took a while to find, like even a remotely listenable download link. But we we have overcame. We have done it. Here, presented to you in the in the radio format. Anyway, let's move it right along into this first set of ours. This is a band called the Cool Greenhouse, and this is their brand new single. The end of the world, very apropos. Anyway, let's go to listen. 